It's Tuesday, January 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It's all hands on deck at the FBI as they try to track down those who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. The Justice Department has charged about 100 people so far, with more to come. But the focus is also on extremist groups such as the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, who they believe moved in organized and practiced fashion to force their way in. Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, companies are still in a rush working on drugs that can help treat COVID-19 and stay ahead of new, more transmissible variants that are popping up all over. Monoclonal antibody drugs are administered intravenously, making them a little cumbersome, and some companies are working on new ones that are more accessible and may be given as a shot. Joseph Walker, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the race to stay ahead of coronavirus mutations. Finally, procrastination can be difficult to avoid as working from home amid the pandemic is sapping the motivation for many. When your boss or coworkers are not around, it can be tough to hold yourself accountable. And experts say it can be important to start small, establish your routine, and don't beat yourself up about it. Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how to avoid procrastinating at home. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I mean, this is the place to do it. And if there's any place to go, um, when you cross the line and commit a criminal act, that's what we won't tolerate. Joining us now is Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post and author of the book, October Surprise, How the FBI Tried to Save Itself and Crashed an Election. Thanks for joining us, Devlin. Thanks for having me, Oscar. I wanted to talk about how the FBI is in overdrive right now, finding people that were part of the Capitol Hill riots on January 6th. They're looking into a lot of members that were part of these extremist groups that you keep hearing about, the Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, the Proud Boys. I think they have maybe about 100 people that they might have been in contact with or, or arrested already. But there's so many people who are there and the investigations are ongoing. They're saying it could take weeks, maybe months. Devlin, tell us a little bit about what we're hearing. This has been just an all-hands-on-deck effort by the FBI since the attack. They've been criticized for missing signals and missing intelligence and not acting on intelligence before, but ever since they've been running on all cylinders. And so a lot of that has been targeted towards what, you know, investigators think of as the low-hanging fruit. Those folks who just took selfies and just sort of put it out there in the public that they had done this. But you're now seeing the FBI work a lot harder on building cases against some of the more worrisome characters in what happened that day, including members of these self-styled militias who went there in a lot of military clothing and helmets. And one guy had a bat and a number of them had bear spray. And you're seeing them really hone in now on the extremists and the members of these extremist groups. One of the amazing parts of all of this is that a lot of these people put videos, pictures, all this stuff on social media, maybe to show others that they're part of trying to change something, whatever it is. But this is exactly how they're being tracked down by the FBI. So it's really hurting them in, all, in, in that sense of it. But I do want to ask about who the Oath Keepers are. In your latest article, you you know, a lot of these people that were part of this group have been contacted and, and arrested, I guess, by the FBI, but I'm not very familiar with them. It seems to be a lot of former military, former law enforcement. Folks might have some vague recollection of the Oath Keepers because during the Black Lives Matters protests 
over the summer. If you remember, there were times when some other guys would show up dressed out like soldiers and some of them carrying weapons, if that was allowed in the particular state or city where they were in. But they would basically show up declaring themselves to be essentially vigilantes to protect property and prevent looting or rioting of any kind. And those were Oath Keepers. And they are a growing popular subset among militia groups. They're active in Ohio and a bunch of other states. And some of the folks who've been arrested now for rioting at the Capitol are basically Oath Keepers from that part of the country. And so that is a group that the FBI is looking at very hard and trying to see what connections there are among all these different folks. What they're really focused on is some of these extremist members and people that were doing these kind of organized, coordinated attacks, let's say. We know that these militia groups practice certain movements and things like that. And the FBI saw evidence of some of that. And that's where they're concentrating a lot of their efforts on as well. There's one very interesting video that's been circulating that the FBI has cited in an affidavit filed very recently, where they talk about a bunch of Oath Keepers moving in what's called a Ranger line, which is for folks who watch a lot of military movies, they might recognize that where every guy puts his hand on basically the shirt of the guy in front of them and they move like a snake through space. And so they're looking at stuff like that. And there's also there's one individual in particular that is with these guys who seems to be interacting through the day, not just with the Oath Keepers, but with other groups that are concerned to the FBI, like the Proud Boys and like the Three Percenters. And so those interactions are very important to investigators as they try to figure out, okay, are people organizing here or are they just sort of getting excited and instigating? Because some of this stuff that they're seeing and finding looks like organization. The Proud Boys, as you mentioned, is also another interesting group that figures into some of this. Their chairman was arrested right before the January 6th rally that happened over there in D.C. And I guess since then, a little bit of good news, I guess, they've been signaling to their members to pull out of pro-Trump protests, anything that's planned around the inauguration. You know, who knows if they'll follow those words, but I guess just the increased scrutiny has told them to pull back at least. I think there's a cat and mouse game going on right now between the FBI and the Proud Boys. And I think the Proud Boys seem to understand that they are under a lot of investigative scrutiny right now. And look, a lot of this is video evidence, but a lot of it, too, is once the FBI starts arresting and charging people, do any of these people decide to cooperate and provide evidence against others? And that's going to be, I think, the next step in this investigation is what sort of evidence do investigators start putting together, not just from the videos and not just from social media, but from the participants themselves. And what kind of charges are some of these participants facing? You know, maybe some of the guys that they've already arrested, they have on video, depending, I guess it ranges, obviously, if they are seen destroying property, things like that. But what kind of charges could they be facing? So right now, they're basically charging folks with a variety of the federal version of trespassing or assault on a federal officer. But officials describe those charges as For some of these folks, they expect to be placeholder charges, meaning they're charging him with the easy, obvious ones first, and then they're going to look to make harder, tougher charges. And the big one that they have already talked about seeking to use is a charge called seditious conspiracy, which is kind of what it sounds like, plotting against the government. And in that charge carries a potential 20-year prison sentence with it. So that is the big hammer that they can use on some of these folks as they proceed. But no one's been charged with that yet. It's just something that prosecutors have signaled that they plan to charge folks with. Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post and author of October Surprise, How the FBI Tried to Save Itself and Crashed an Election. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Thanks a lot, Oscar. So there's a couple of challenges here. One is that the drugs themselves have to be uh, administered intravenously, which is you know not a super big deal. It's about an hour long infusion. But in a time when a lot of plate, a lot of hospitals are struggling with treating really sick patients, that they've been a little bit slow. Joining us now is Joseph Walker, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Joseph. Happy to be here. Everybody's on the vaccine train right now, getting out as many doses as we can, but. Companies are still developing drugs that could work to help limit how severe coronavirus gets uh, or how, how severe uh, COVID-19 can be in people, you know, helping keeping them out of the hospital, all that stuff. And obviously, you know, we heard a lot about mutations and variants of COVID-19 and spreading faster. So these companies are still working on making those drugs and making them effective against those different strains. Joseph, tell us a little bit what's going on with these. So, so obviously, these are drugs for people who are already infected with COVID, which, you know, unfortunately, we'll probably continue to need until everyone is fully vaccinated and we get to herd immunity. And so these drugs are called monoclonal antibodies. And what they are, are lab-engineered drugs that essentially are versions of the natural antibodies that your own immune system makes when you're infected by a virus. And so these drugs work by latching onto the virus and stopping it from getting into your cells and, and sort of replicating itself and taking over, which makes you sick. So these drugs have been out for a few months now. President Trump famously received one. I, he said, I, I got the Regeneron and, and now I'm doing much better. So there's a couple of challenges here. One is that the drugs themselves have to be uh, administered intravenously, which is you know not a super big deal. It's about an hour long infusion. But in a time when a lot of plate, a lot of hospitals are struggling with treating really sick patients, that they've been a little bit slow to get uh, infusion sites up and running for these drugs. And then the other worry that, that sort of has been in the back of people's mind, and that is sort of more at the fore now, is that viruses mutate over time. And there's always a possibility as they mutate that they become resistant to both the natural immune response and also these antibody drugs. And so at this point, there's a number of companies who are developing sort of next generation versions of these drugs that they hope will anticipate any of these future mutations or variations that we see in the virus, as well as make them more easy to administer by making them just like a simple shot or two instead of an infusion, which should make it easier for doctors to administer and easier for patients to get. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, administering these medicines are a little cumbersome. You mentioned it's about an hour long infusion, but it requires an hour of prep time, an hour long of monitoring after. As you mentioned, these hospitals are so strapped for space and time and so many patients, it's hard to kind of get through all that stuff. So yeah, making it easier to administer would be very, very helpful. Name us some of the companies and some of the medicines that are being worked on. I know AstraZeneca is a player in this. They have a drug cocktail of two antibodies and a few other uh, medicines. Eli Lilly was one too, where it's kind of interesting because we're hearing about the variants especially. And I guess, you know, they say that their drug is fine against the UK variant, maybe not so against the South African variant. So that's a very interesting one right there. 
So maybe to take the last one first here. So one thing to just keep in mind with these variants, right, is that so what we're calling the South African variant, as far as we know, is not sort of widespread here in the U.S. yet, which is a good thing, obviously. And so the point is, though, is that in America, at least, and in most other countries, you don't have to worry about the South African variant yet, right? But if it were to become sort of dominant or come here in the U.S., then that might be a problem for this Eli Lilly drug. In fact, it looks like it is a problem for the Eli, Eli Lilly drug. The company itself admits that their drug looks like it will be less effective against this variant in, in South Africa. So the good news is that Regeneron also has a drug, which is very similar to Eli Lilly's, but except it has two antibodies. And that's a good thing because if you have a variant that's going to escape one of the antibody drugs, the other antibody should uh, capture it and, and kick in. So with AstraZeneca's drug, it's also a combo. So you have that added benefit where hopefully it should stay effective, hopefully against any variations, but it's also going to be a shot. So they're in clinical trials in a number of different areas, but they're going to be starting up soon a phase three trial in the U.S. to treat people who are already infected but not in the hospital. So that could end up being the first one to get authorization in the U.S., in which case they're talking about trying to set up a situation where you could go get tested. And if you're like at high risk of developing severe disease, you could maybe even get their shot that same day at the same, even maybe at the same place that you get tested. All this is sort of aspirational um, and would require real quick turnaround times. But I do think it's feasible at some point in the future. And, And if that were the case, I think it would help a lot of people. Joseph Walker, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I have an old iPhone. Like a lot of us have them like lingering in our in our cabinets and <laughs> those right. like white boxes that we never use. Like turn it on. It'll probably work with Wi-Fi. And that can be your like Instagram phone that you use when you're taking set breaks. Joining us now is Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to talk about productivity and procrastination. I'm a huge procrastinator just in everyday life. But as we've seen throughout this last year, the pandemic tends to amplify things, let's say, especially when you're working from home. I'm lucky enough to kind of do a balance. Sometimes I'm at home, sometimes I'm at work. And it's completely different when I'm at home. Those little uh, distractions really play a big part in it. And I find myself putting things off to the last possible second. So how do we fight this? What's going on while we're working from home mostly? Well, first of all, know that it's not just you. I mean, you're right. Like some people's personalities, they're just more prone to procrastination. But I think in this moment, everyone is really struggling. The thing that I learned when I started reporting this piece is that our office, our workplace, like oftentimes came with cues that kind of reminded us to work, even just seeing colleagues, like walking to a conference room, going out for lunch, this kind of routine really kind of motivated us. In addition to the fact that, of course, our boss was watching oftentimes, so (laughs) you could just get away with a little bit less procrastination. Part of that, I found out very interesting, those cues that you were talking about, because at work, you're only there for a finite amount of time, right? So let's say just throwing out there nine to five and, you know, you have your disruptions here and there and you know, well, I got to finish all my stuff by the time I'm leaving. When you're working from home, it's completely different. You're there the entire time. So, you know, you can spread it out throughout the day. And at the end of the night, you might still be working thinking, man, I waited to the last possible second to get everything done. Exactly. It gets kind of blurry. And if you don't have that routine, it can be a huge problem. That's what I heard from experts. Like one of their tips was, you know, set firm work hours, start at 9 a.m., even if you could kind of get away with starting later, because you're going to run into a problem when it gets 
kind of blurry. And I also heard from someone who told me that he was having a lot of trouble because he didn't have those boundaries and he also didn't have those set kind of breaks and set interruptions that you might expect to kind of like put little bumpers on your workday and carve out your time. And I think when it just gets really nebulous, you can also run into this problem where maybe you're like really crunching for the morning, you're working really hard, and then you just end up totally like burnt out by the afternoon. And that's when that afternoon procrastination hits. Keeping yourself accountable is really difficult. As you mentioned, when your boss is not there or whatnot, you know, you tend to stretch those out in the middle of the day. So you did speak to a few experts on how to kind of avoid this procrastination thing. What are they saying? So one thing is to add some separation. So we talked about kind of like establishing a routine set for work hours, but also just like physically having some separation. Someone even told me like, use different devices for different things. So I know this is hard, but like try not to go on social media. If you have another device, try not to go on social media on your work computer. Pull out an old iPhone. Like a lot of us have them like lingering in our in our cabinets and those like white boxes that we never use. Like turn it on. It'll probably work with Wi-Fi. And that can be your like Instagram phone that you use when you're taking set breaks. And if you can like leave it in another room, even just having to walk like 20 seconds to go and do that can really help. That's probably a really good idea. There's countless times where I'm I'm sitting down, I'm reading, taking notes, researching for a story, an interview, just like we're doing now, and I'll creep over to my phone, and and then I waste, you know, like 15, 20 minutes doing that when I should be narrowing down things that we're going to be talking about right now. So that's a good one, especially removing yourself from the situation, going to another room. Another one that some of the experts told you about was starting small. Sometimes it helps to get you over that hump, just opening an email, maybe writing the headline will get you kind of in the mode to start working more? Just start. And actually, I I meant even put like a sub, like, you know, a part B there, which was like, really just start. Like you have to just like actually take that first step. And it's so easy to put off, but just like to feel like you're pushing things forward to get that little bit of confidence that like maybe you can break this down and give it a go, I think is really crucial. Yeah. And one of the things that we kind of alluded to throughout this right now is establishing that routine. And I know that's the toughest part, at least for me, when I'm working from home. But that could be one of the biggest things to help benefit avoiding the procrastination. And also, like, you can combine that with getting a partner. So, like, accountability is just really huge. You know, I talked to someone who does kind of like a Zoom study hall where you would literally be online and watching other people do their work, and that can really help motivate you. And those are just strangers. But you could also just, like, pick a buddy. Pick, like, a peer. Talk to them. One of the people I talked to had a client who, like, meets with a peer every morning. They kind of plan their weeks. They talk about priorities. And then at the end of each day, they touch base to kind of review how things went. Um, And I've done this even with friends, like, who, you know, have different jobs than I do. Just, like, in broad strokes. My best friend and I talk not infrequently. And sometimes I will literally just tell her, like, can you just text me and tell me I have to start writing this story and then text me again in an hour and make sure I did it. And it really does help. We keep going through these tips and talking more and more. And I'm finding that I am the worst person to work with because when I work at home, my wife is also working at home too. And I'm the one who's taking her away from things saying, hey, let's go do something else. Let's take the dog for a walk. So I'm the one that's distracting everybody. I'm realizing through all of this. But the last thing uh, that you mentioned too in your article is don't beat yourself up about it. We are going through these kind of weird, unprecedented times. And just because you're procrastinating doesn't mean that you're failing at everything. I mean, like, you really can't take it so personally. I mean, you can keep trying to fight it and and you should, you know, try to get going with work. But everyone is feeling this. It's that stress and just feeling down. I mean, in many ways, this really is kind of like an energy and confidence problem for a lot of people. 
we j- it's just really hard to get going when we're feeling down. And I think everyone's kind of feeling that right now. Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.